I wonder if you can um, relate to this. You're listening to some music, you've got headphones on, or you've got your earbuds in, and it's turned up loud, and you're just belting out the words to one of your favourite songs, and you sound awesome. <laughs> right? This was me last night washing up, so anyway, to make it fun. And like, you're punching out harmonies, and you're like, why am I not in this band? I just sound amazing. But there's someone else in the room who doesn't have the headphones on, who actually thinks you sound like a drunk singing karaoke. I saw the smile on my wife's face last night as I was going hard at it. And, and if you take the headphones off, the earbuds out, you can't but agree. Whoa, it sounds terrible. Well, imagine if your life was a melody and you were sure that the sound of your life would be such a treat to the ears of God, only to be told by someone that actually, you know what? When God hears your life, this is what he hears. But God, I'm doing lots of good stuff. People say I'm doing really good things. I'm really... I wonder, drummers are deaf. That's the striking image that Paul gives us in this text this morning, that we could be living lives that we think are sounding sweet, but to God are nothing but a noisy nuisance. Paul is writing to a bunch of early Christians at the early church, many of whom had deluded themselves by having the headphones on. They were sure that their lives were sounding oh so sweet to God. But Paul actually wants them to take the headphones off to actually hear how they really sound and to actually learn to sing in a way that would be pleasing to God. Now, let me shift the metaphor. We're not talking about singing. We're talking about living a life that is pleasing to God, which Paul says is one that is going to be marked by love. This is the passage in front of us. It's a very well-known passage. There's three movements to it. Uh, let's step through them, beginning with number one, the importance of love. Verses one to three there. This section is summed up by this formula. Gifts minus love equals nothing. Demonstrating the most impressive gift from the Spirit is not necessarily the same as possessing the fruit of the Spirit, chief of which is love. Verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm like the resounding gong or the clanging cymbal. Uh, the gift of tongues, this is a spiritual gift that many in the church of Corinth had, and they'd elevated it to be the greatest mark of spirituality. And yet Paul says, without love, just a noisy nuisance. Notice it's not the gift that's the problem. It's the person. I am like a noisy gong. And he goes on and gives four more examples of the formula that a gift minus love equals nothing. Verse two, you could have prophecy, the gift of prophecy, the ability to have deep insight into the things of God. You could be the most gifted preacher, teacher, theologian, author. You could have enough faith that says to Mount Kosciuszko, get in my backyard, and it does which is a way of referring to the miraculous powers of, of healing, those kinds of things. But if you lacked love, 
you are nothing. Notice that. But if I lack love, I am nothing. It's not the gift of prophecy. It's not the gift of faith. The problem is with me. Or you could have such a, a charitable life. You could give not just 10%, not just 50%, but you could give everything you possess to the poor. You could give your body over to hardship, endure great sacrifice for others, possibly even for God. And yet without love, you gain nothing. Like an engine, for all of its impressive in engineering, without oil, it's not going anywhere. Spiritual gifts, as impressive as we might think that they are, Without love, we are not going anywhere. You could have any or all of these five seemingly heroic gifts, but without love from God's perspective, you're a clanging nuisance, you're a nothing, you gain nothing. Wow. Isn't that a sobering thought? What does that mean? to be a noisy nuisance, to be nothing, to gain nothing. Well, I take it here, Paul is referring to salvation. In chapter 12, he makes it clear that it's not any gifting that evidences baptism in the Spirit. Rather, it's confessing that Jesus is Lord. And then he goes on in chapter 13 to show that it's a life marked by love that is evidence that that confession is genuine, that you really are someone baptised in the spirit. Jesus says exactly the same. Chase it up later. John chapter 13, 35. It's love that will show you to be legit disciples, legit followers of me, says Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but you, you kind of look at those things. Don't some of them at least seem like loving acts? Like prophecy, um, preaching, surely, surely that can help others. Giving to the poor can provide for the needs of others. What do we make of these acts that seem to be loving in and of themselves? Why can they actually mean I am nothing before God? Well, at least two reasons. Firstly, motive. Back in chapter 4, verse 5, uh, where Paul was defending his office as an apostle as the Corinthians were um, attacking him, he says, wait until the Lord comes he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So actions matter, yes, but so do the motives that drive them, that are behind them. And it's possible to give yourself to acts that God will use to bring great good and blessing to others without you actually being pleasing to him. It's a sobering thought as we give ourselves to lots of things. But a second reason that we could do these acts and yet be nothing is more immediately obvious in this passage, and that that is, you're just a jerk. Paul's going to go on in this second part to unpack what love looks like as it relates to people in the ordinariness of life. And if you're impressively gifted and shine when the camera is on, but at home you're a complete loser with the way that you treat your family, your housemates, regardless of your gifts that you have or don't have, if you leave a trail of pain in your relationships, you gain nothing. 
You show yourself to be nothing. This is what Paul turns to in this second movement of the passage, verses 4 to 7, where he starts to unpack the nature of love. Here he puts some clothes on love, not so much by describing what it is, but what it does. Notice this, he's going to give us 15 traits of love, and they're all verbs. They're all doing words. Love isn't some abstract kind of idea. It's not sentimental where you just feel the feels. Instead, love is personified as one who relates to others. Now, 15 things, I feel like we could spend 15 weeks on each of these things, but for the sake of time, let's move them through them fairly quickly. I'll linger on some a little more than others. Verse 4, love is patient. Love has a long fuse. Love is patient with circumstances, yes, but particularly with people. It's patient with immature Christians. Love is patient with children. And I hear the parents along with me take a big sigh as we hear that, particularly if you've got young kids or teenagers. We'll come back to what we do with that. But love has a long fuse. It's patient. Love is kind. If patience is the passive side of the coin, then kindness is the active. Kindness does good, especially to those that we have to work hard to be patient with. Love does not envy. There's a couple of kinds of envy. There's the kind that is envious of what someone else has. Uh, the job, the family, the lifestyle. You, you want the thing or the person that they have for yourself. And you might smile and say hi to them when you see them, but on the inside, you just, you're envious. But then there's the worst kind of envy. And it's not just envious of something or someone that someone else has. You just don't want them to have anything good. There's such a, a, a bitterness that when someone takes a step forward, a little piece of you dies. And when someone takes a step backwards, you secretly rejoice. Well, guess what? You can't hide envy. Certainly not from God, and almost certainly it will poison our relationships. I wonder, do you have someone that you have made as your point of comparison? So that as they seem to go forward, you shrivel up a bit. And if they go backwards, or if you feel like you've gone forwards, you delight. Not that you've gone forward, but they've gone backwards. This is toxic to our relationships and our church body. For the Corinthians, it expressed themselves back in chapter 3 with divisions and rivalry over leaders. Who might the Lord be putting on your mind right now that you live in envy of? Love doesn't live this way. What's the medicine? Well, just back in chapter 12, verse 26, when Paul was expressing the body that we are, he says, when one part of the body is honoured, every part is to rejoice with it. There's the medicine. When you see something or, or someone in someone else's life, rejoice with them. 
give thanks to God for his goodness, for his work in their life and possibly even voice that to them. Hey, I'm so thankful to God for what he's doing in your life. Love does not envy. Verse 4, love does not boast, it is not proud. So not envying is about what you don't have. Boasting pride is about what you do have. Love is not puffed up and full of yourself. It it doesn't go out to make much of your accomplishments. And so for those of you who live in this world, let me ask you this. Does this characterise your social media feed? One of the reasons I don't post anything, particularly on Instagram anymore, is that I found it was just too much of a playground for pride in my heart, that that I would work hard to to craft this presence that, look, look how good, I actually want you to be envious of this. I'm not putting up all the stuff that shows all the mess and failures of my life. Uh, I was caught up in the, well, who liked it, who didn't like it. Um, Now, I'm not saying that you can't use social media in love. I believe that you can. I believe that you should. We should. But I would want to point out we need to take great care. Um, Surely just endless scrolling through other people's lives is fuel for envy. Be careful. And be careful as you think about what you post. What's the point of this? What's, what's my heart? What's my motivation in this? Watch out that it isn't just self-promotion and pride. Love does not boast. It is not proud. Love does not dishonour others. One of the classic ways we attempt to feel more significant, more impressive about ourselves is by pushing others down. Uh, I'm told that that's the way of water polo, uh, where the only way to actually get ahead or get up is to actually push someone else down. What an unloving game. (laughs) Don't live life like a game of water polo. Now, love can say negative things. We'll come to that in a moment. But just check yourself the next time you go to say something negative about someone, what's the goal, what's the point? Is actually there something lurking underneath that I want to push them down so I would elevate myself? Love does not dishonour others. Verse 5, love is not self-seeking. It doesn't insist on its own way, on its own preferences, on its own styles, but it can defer to the good of others. It doesn't mean you don't have preferences and opinions and styles. It doesn't mean there wouldn't be times to actually go, no, 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 we we paint it that colour, not that colour. No, no, I, I don't want the plant there, I want it there. But love won't insist. Uh, And if I can just give myself a a little plug here. We recently painted, on my mind, we recently painted our lounge room. Uh, We painted it white. We're trying to, you know, make things feel a little bigger, a little calmer in spite of what they really are. And uh, and I've got big black stereo speakers, hi-fi speakers. I've had them since I was 18. And I was told they weren't welcome back into the lounge room. (laughs) But, But... 
So I actually got a paintbrush out and painted my speakers. This is love, <laughs> that it would not insist on our own way. I could tell you many ways that I've failed, just wanted to point out a little win there. You know what, so, so, some things that I'm hearing from some of you that you're appreciating about the live stream is that you control the volume of the music. <laughs> Down it goes, you know, Menzies, ah, oh, I can listen to it, smash it. But you know what, because you are people of love, as we're able to gather again and God willing that that is coming and coming soon, you'll come. It may not be the volume, it may not be the style, but in love, you won't insist on your own way. It's not self-seeking. Verse 5, love is not easily angered. It connects obviously with patience. We're not to be people who instantly snap into the avenger, the superhero who heads out to avenge any wrong that's been done to us, often because people just kind of stepped a little bit into our turf, maybe stepped a little bit on our toes. Are you someone that people have to walk around on eggshells? The problem with answering that is, how do you know? Because uh, people are often too afraid to, to share with you, to tell you. Uh, this is where a trusted Christian brother or sister can be helpful. Do I have a problem with anger? Verse 5, love keeps no records of wrongs. Now, let's face it, we, we've all been hurt and we've all hurt others, some more deeply than others. But it's as if when we're hurt, we have this YouTube clip of the moment, you know, when those words were said, and this YouTube clip, which is filed away, has like a thousand views in our mind. Just kind of keep going back to it. Oh, when they did it, keep coming back to it. Oh, Love says, stop playing it. Play another clip. Maybe this side of heaven you'll never be able to delete the clip. But play another clip. Uh, this is critical in our marriages. Of course, it's critical to all our relationships and all the dimensions of love are critical to marriage. But this one, I think especially, you know, where it's just, oh, she said that again. Oh, she did that again like last. This will be the death, a slow death of our marriages, love keeps no record of wrongs. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Let me push into that second part for a moment, because this is a clash with how our view, un with how our world understands love. Our world assumes that love is the opposite to making judgments, that actually in love you stop making judgments. So when same-sex marriage was passed, many celebrated that love had won. You know, the judgmentalism had been squashed, love had won. But notice what the Bible doesn't allow you to do. It doesn't allow you to separate love and truth. Because love rejoices in the truth. Christians can't say things like, oh, I'd rather be a warm love guy than a cold truth guy. Well, just goes, you can't do that. Yes, the way that we go about relating to those with whom we disagree must be loving, patient, kind. Uh, we speak the truth in love. But love doesn't mean we let go of any belief that would, by nature, divide. 
love rejoices in the truth. It clings to it. Verse 7, love always protects, or as your ESV translation has, endures. It's not a one-night stand, but it stands with people and for people for life. Love always trusts. And this doesn't mean that we're gullible, uh, that we believe any and everything, but love doesn't live with the poisonous spirit of suspicion and scepticism about everyone. Love will actually look for the good in people, broken as we are. Love always hopes. It doesn't give up, which is why love always perseveres. Though the ride can be bumpy, love will stick at it. Now there's a very quick fly over 15 facets of love that that Paul gives here. But before we move on, let me give you five reflections from what we see in these verses. Number one, love is long-suffering. Now, that doesn't sound very sexy, does it? It doesn't sound like the, the Valentine's Day card, but this is Jesus' love. Which means this. If we're going to love like this, then we need to keep dying to our desire for life to be increasingly comfortable. We need to let go of the plans that we have that would let no one or nothing that's frustrating or hard to bear with into our lives. Love is long-suffering. It's easy to love when things are going according to plan, when the baby's sleeping at nap time, when the baby has slept through the night, when the train is on time so you can get to work to present the project. It might even be easier to love when you're stuck at home in isolation not needing to deal with many people. But love that is pleasing to God, it's patient. It endures. It's long-suffering. It's gritty, which means it expects frustration and has the ticker to bear up again and again and again which means years of embracing this way of life will mean love looks more like a weathered face with lots of wrinkles than it does a smooth, tight complexion. It's the weathered face which God looks on as beautiful. Love is long-suffering. Number two, love is humble. It thinks less of ourselves than our inflated egos attempting to make of ourselves. But more importantly, it doesn't think less of ourselves as much as it thinks of ourselves less. It, it, has, a, it has the ability to look to others. How can I serve? How can I be kind? How can I bless? That's not necessarily needing to think less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Love looks to the good of others. It's humble. Number three, love, this kind of love, is unnatural. Did you notice this 15, there are more love is not than there are love is. Uh, 
Paul has to say, it, it's not this, it's not that, it's not when you do this. This tells you that Christian love is not always what comes naturally. Flick over to Galatians chapter 5 with me. Just a couple of books to the right. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17. Or even pick it up verse 16. Paul again writing, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. By nature, human beings are fallen creatures. By nature, we have a sinful core. All of us has rejected God has fallen short of his glory. The wonder of the gospel is that through Jesus, we might actually have a new nature, a spirit nature. But until Jesus returns, we find ourselves with two natures, the nature of the flesh, the one that is hostile to God, and the nature of the spirit. And so until Jesus returns, it takes great alertness and discipline in watching for love that is driven by the flesh as opposed to the spirit. You don't just drift into the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Uh, the reality is we will be drawn to self-love over and over again. This kind of love, it's unnatural, which means we need to be awake to that. Now, we do have the spirit. We do have everything we need for a life of holiness and godliness, but it takes great alertness. Number four, love like this drives us to faith in a saviour, at least it must. What if this text were the criteria God had for you entering heaven? You know, when, when you stand before him and he says, all right, here's what I expected if you were to be welcomed into my presence. And God doesn't judge on a curve. What are your chances looking like of being accepted? I mean, put your name in there, right? Let me do me. Jez is patient. Jez is kind. Jez does not envy he doesn't boast, he's not proud, he doesn't dishonour others, he's not self-seeking, he's not easily angered, keeps no records of wrong. And on we go. I'm convicted that I have no hope of being welcomed into the presence of God. If living like this were the criteria, I've fallen far short. Haven't you? Like if God's not saying, look, just, just love a little bit, Okay, maybe not all day, every day, but just make sure you get some of these. But love, if God says, no, 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 love perfectly. We're hopeless. Uh, we love that this time has actually meant that more people have jumped into checking out the things of Jesus uh, that kind of hadn't been coming to church, but you can check this thing out. Hear this clearly. This is a passage that is quite happily read at non-Christian weddings. It doesn't mention God, doesn't mention Jesus, doesn't mention the Spirit by name. 
It can be taken as just this kind of sentimental, lofty, beautiful piece. But actually, if you slow down, if you let it be a mirror, and, and if you let it show you what God expects, how are you doing? This actually shows us how far we fall short and that we need forgiveness. And that's exactly what God offers in the gospel. That he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As we measure our lives by this text, oh, it's confronting. But let it drive you to a saviour who actually did live this life. You can swap out the word love for Jesus and it holds up. Jesus was patient and kind, did not envy, did not boast, was not proud, did not dishonour others, was not self-seeking. He gave up his life for others. We have one who stands in our place, who has loved perfectly so that as we would look to him, we might be covered by his life of love. That he might take the punishment for our failing to love. This text drives us to faith in a saviour. But fifth reflection, love like this is an evidence of salvation. So yes, we can't make it on our own. There's no way. We look to Jesus as a saviour. But what's the evidence that you really have done that? Well, as we've been seeing, you enjoy baptism in the spirit. The spirit comes to actually make a new you. And what is that new you? What, what is that new you marked by? Love. The most excellent way. This is an evidence that you have looked to a saviour, that you would now, not perfectly, but truly and increasingly live a life marked by love. Is it possible for you, if you've been following, if you've been following Jesus for three months, six months, then you might be able to see a, a bunch of change. And yet, for those of you who've been following three years, three decades... Is it possible, as you honestly look back at your life, can you say, yes, I have grown as a person of love? Not perfectly, not all the time, I need a saviour, but is there actual transformation? More and more and more. If there's not, or if maybe there was and it's stalled for a whole long time, this text becomes a great challenge. You need to be a person of love if you are to evidence that Jesus really is your Lord? Have you given up on God changing you? Do not diminish the power and the work of the Spirit who intends to transform you with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 ever increasing, that is not to a point and then now you've hit 60, man, nah, we'll just have to wait to heaven. No, not to your 70, man, I'm just an old dog. We'll have to wait till Jesus comes back. The Spirit intends to transform us wherever we're at by increasingly making us 
look like Jesus, which is to be more and more a person of this kind of love. What areas of life might the Spirit be prompting you to repent of this morning? To take seriously again, to pay closer attention to, or maybe things to just keep going at. Because love is long-suffering. There's the second movement of this passage. Here's the third and much quicker verses 8 to 13, where Paul unpacks the permanence of love. This is the part that actually where I've heard it read at a wedding, particularly a non-Christian wedding, I find myself going, what is this part about? Like, really? Love never fails. Okay, that's nice. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completely... And this comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, what's this about? Well, hopefully, if you've been tracking through the letter with us, you'll have a sense of what it's about. Because chapter 13 comes after chapter 12 and before 14 that we'll push into. This is a group of people who have been making much of spectacular spiritual gifts. And particularly the gift of speaking in tongues was evidence to them that they had spiritually arrived. But Paul says, no, it's the opposite. The very fact that you have spiritual gifts points out that you haven't arrived. It's a bit like, um, uh, this happened to me last night, our, our power went out. It was late at night, it was dark. And so I was very thankful for that little torch in my phone that we pretty much all have, right? I was just able to whip the, the torch on, out I went into the dark, through plenty of light for me to find the way, sort out the fuse. But when the light, when, when the sun comes up in the morning, when it's the middle of the day, are we whipping out our torch to put on that puny little LED torch? No, we don't need it. It's the same with spiritual gifts Paul is teaching. He's not down on spiritual gifts at all. He's going to keep unpacking the importance of them into chapter 14. But he's pointing out that they're temporary. That the Spirit of God gives gifts to his people during this age as we're apart from Jesus in order to build up the church. But when Jesus returns and we're with him, When we're walking by sight, we don't need the gift of tongues for edification. We don't need prophecy. We've got Jesus right there. We don't need gifts of healing. We have a new creation with no more sickness, no more sin, no more death. Spiritual gifts are significant, but they're temporary. And Paul makes the point that love is a greater way, not a gift, a greater way because it's for this age and into eternity. So that, yes, spiritual gifts are to be pursued, are to be exercised, but in the way of love, because love is eternal. That's the point of this last section be more concerned with a life marked by love than particular spiritual gifts. And secondly, 
as you do pursue and exercise gifts, as he's going to call us to, let love be the steering wheel. Uh, what gifts might I pursue? And we'll push into what that means next week. Or how might I exercise what God has given me in a way that loves? The way that Paul has unpacked in these verses. That will be the evidence that Jesus really is your Lord. That you really have been baptised in the Spirit. Who will be the greatest in heaven? Who will stand before God and hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, yes, the person who did things for God, who served God, who used their gifts for God. But the person who lived according to the most excellent way, love. Let me pray for us. Father, see what great love you, the Father, has lavished on us that we might be called children of God. For that is what we are. We praise you for your beauty, for your splendour, for your holiness, for your love. That you have seen how hopeless and helpless we are to, to come into your presence and, and know and enjoy your love so that in love you have come and done everything needed in Jesus. For those listening, tuning in who, who haven't come back to you through forgiveness, who who haven't received your love, I pray please that you might do a powerful work in their lives and bring them to know the love of your forgiveness. And for those of us that have, please work powerfully by your spirit so that we might evidence that great love, that we may show ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. Forgive us please for the ways that we've failed at that again this week. And may we not give up that you are living in us by your spirit, determined to transform us into the likeness of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.